Hello and welcome to another episode of the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thanks for joining us. Today, we have Andrea Young, where she is the VP for Finance and Administration and Associate Professor of Mathematical Sciences at DePaul University. Welcome, Andrea. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. So I always like everyone to kind of take us all the way back to their days when they were matriculating at, you know, their undergrad. So you were at Penn State. Am I right? Take us all the way back there. So I did my undergraduate at Penn State and I thought I was going to be an engineer. But very quickly, I uh, discovered the world of mathematics. I didn't know that one could study only mathematics. Uh, and I learned that very early on, and it was math all the way for me. So I have a, an undergraduate degree in, in mathematics uh, and a minor in Italian, which is relevant to my story later. It, but then I um, went straight from my undergraduate degree in math to a PhD program in mathematics at the University of Texas at Austin. So how was that at uh, University of Texas? You're going from Penn State, so you're kind of northeast, and then you went over there to the south with the big change. Was that a big change for you? You know, it was a big change. Texas is uh, its own culture. Uh, it, you know, they really think of themselves, frankly, as their own country. Uh, so I loved, I loved my time in Austin, and I loved the time in Texas. But it was, it was really like being in being in another country. Uh, everything was Texas, you know, Texas pride and and Texas power. Um, but it was great. It was it, uh, UT Austin is a great school. And it was a, a great, a great place to go and study mathematics. After you left there, what was next for you? Uh, after that, I went to Tucson, Arizona, to the University of Arizona, and I did a postdoctoral fellow in math. So, you know, the theme here is math. And I really thought, uh, I thought that I was going to be a, a research mathematician. And so I went and I did a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, my area was differential geometry and so worked for three years uh, as a research postdoc. Uh, at, the, at the University of Arizona, did a little teaching, but primarily was focused on research. From there, you landed, is this when you went to, is it pronounced Ripon, Ripon College? That's correct, Ripon College. That's right. Talk to us about that. At the University of Arizona, I met the man who would become my husband uh, right before he was taking a tenure track job at uh, a little school in Wisconsin uh, in, uh, called Ripon College that I had never heard of. And I never envisioned myself, number one, being at a small college nor being at a, in a small town in Wisconsin. Um, but the stars aligned right and several years later when I was on the market for a tenure track position. Ripon had a position, and so I went and joined the mathematics department at Ripon. Ripon was a, is a small uh, private college, small private liberal arts institution, very small, under a thousand students. And what I discovered was, even though I went to big state schools my entire educational career, I should have gone to a liberal arts institution. So everything about me and, and the Italian minor, uh, a lot of my sort of ancillary interests really align with with the liberal arts. And so it was great. I felt felt like I had come home in a lot of ways uh, when I got that job at Ripon. 
I'm sure. And that's such a big change. You said it was a, a thousand students. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that is pretty small. Tiny. Yeah. So you were there for 11 years. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So I'm sure you you had several roles while you were there. So talk to us about what you what all you did there. I, I went there to be a, a math professor, so I was hired as, as an assistant professor uh, and thought I was going to retire as a math professor at, at Ripon College. And so did all the things that you do, teach my classes, do research, do service. I got tenure and got promoted and was about to go on my sabbatical. And the president tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we have a role in the senior administration. It was the special assistant to the president and liaison to the board of trustees. So basically the chief of staff to the president. And he said, I think you'd really enjoy this, do this for a year and then go take your sabbatical and continue on. I said, sure, what the heck? You know, uh, we'll do it. And and, and then in a year from now, we'll go take a sabbatical and, and it'll be, it'll be great. That actually turned into what is now my career as a full-time administrator. Um, so I, after that role, I served as the, um, as the interim, uh, vice president for academic affairs. So the, the chief, uh, academic officer for, for a time. And we had, we didn't have a CFO, uh, and we had had some failed CFO searches. And so our president again tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, would you become our CFO? And again, I said, well, if not, if not, why not me? Right? Why not me? Uh, and and so I was already on. I'd already been on cabinet for a while, and so I happily and uh, uh, and and willingly took on that role. Uh, and then right before I left Ripon, uh, that president uh, uh, left, and so I was asked to serve as the interim president for my last six months there. So I, I like to joke. Uh, I basically served every role except head football coach. Uh, but it, it was it was really they were it was really great. I got to to really learn just about everything about how higher ed works, and I I was really blessed to get the opportunity to do that. I'm sure. I'm sure. From there, what? How did the opportunity come upon you to land where you are now at DePaul? I love Ripon, but given all those experiences, it had become clear to me that. Um, it was time to to think about other opportunities, and the DePaul opportunity came up came to me. And our the president here at DePaul, Dr. Lori White, is truly a visionary, uh, truly uh, just one of the the best leaders that I could possibly imagine. And so when I got a chance to meet her, I said, "That's my next. That's my next stop." And so we we moved here in the summer of 2022 and have been happy Indiana residents for the last year and a half or so. Yes. Hoosier. Hoosier. I love that. That's right. We are (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. So, you know, you're one of the few people I've spoken with that have basically had just about every position that you can have in higher ed. And you're a former tenured faculty member. You've served as interim president, vice president for finance. You've done uh, dean of faculty. I mean, you have done a lot. So I know that you have a lot of thoughts about shared governance. That is a big topic in higher ed. So talk to me, especially with all your vast experience about 
that uh, topic, shared governance, and how, you know, to work with faculty and all of that? I think that oftentimes, particularly if one is new to higher education, shared governance can really be a, a, a big culture shift and can seem as though it is antithetical to change that it's a barrier to getting work done. And one of the one of the ways in which I like to conceptualize shared governance is I really like to think about the different time horizons that different people at the institution have. And as a faculty member, your time horizon is years or even decades because you are invested, particularly institutions like mine that are, you know, rural, residential, private institutions. People come here and they make their whole career. This is their family. And so they're, they're used to thinking about things in terms of, of years. Whereas as, as an administrator, particularly in finance, we've got to make decisions, not even a, a, a day, minutes, right? Minutes by minutes, we have to, we have to make decisions. And so there's a real tension that's just baked into the cake in terms of the speed at which we feel like we need to move. Um, but I've really, I really have embraced, I think really, I, I, when I was a faculty member, I chaired our, our curriculum committee when we were doing a big general education curriculum revision. So I, I really, to my core, I believe and, uh, and, uh, believe in the power of shared governance and have been able to embrace it as, as an opportunity to, to educate, opportunity to make real sustainable change at an institution, because I, I think someone coming in and making quick decisions, making quick changes, if I know anything about the way these sorts of institutions work, those changes aren't going to last if you haven't gotten the buy-in from the faculty or from the long-term, the long-term staff. And so trying to flip one's perception as shared governance is, is not a bug, it's a feature, and it's, it can really be powerful. If you if you approach it with an open mind and in a collaborative spirit, you can really get a lot done through the shared governance uh, processes. But you've also you've held a lot of non CFO administrative positions in higher ed. And so talk to us about how the role of the CFO, CBO can play relative to the other leaders there. In, and you've held some of those positions as well. So talk to about that dynamic. I don't have a, a traditional finance background. I don't have an MBA. But the, the value that I bring and that I think CFOs bring to the cabinet table, to our colleagues, particularly in academic affairs and the president's office, is we're able to think strategically and we're able to quickly analyze data um, it, it, across the institution. And we have, we tend to be the ones that have the broadest view in many scenarios of what is really going on, both from a dollars perspective and probably from a data perspective. And so positioning ourselves, positioning myself, pos positioning oneself as that strategic partner to the president and that strategic partner to the VP for academic affairs, rather than, you know, an antagonistic relationship or a, or a no, you can't do this, or boy, aren't faculty just so expensive, that, that that's the wrong, I think that's the wrong posture. Um, I, I think we have a superpower as CFOs that we speak numbers, and that resonates with boards, 
And it, and you know, I'm a mathematician, so I also believe it's a source of truth, of real truth, of unvarnished truth. And so we have the opportunity to be truth tellers in a way that it's hard sometimes for presidents and BPAAs to tell truths in the same way that we tell truths. And so, uh, so I really, I, I take, I take great pride actually in serving that role. And, and I think there's real value for presidents to, to think of their CFO in that way rather than just sort of the gatekeeper of the dollars. Right. No, that's really good. That's good. So talk to me about everything that's under your umbrella there at, at DePaul and everything that you are overseeing and responsible for. Sure. So I am responsible for the uh, business and finance teams. I oversee human resources, uh, information technology, facilities, and then all of our auxiliary operations, which include our food service. We run, we own and operate an inn uh, here at Paw 55 Room Inn. Uh, we own and operate a movie theater. For the community, uh, our bookstore is a bookstore and a Starbucks. It's actually in downtown Greencastle. So I, I oversee all of those, all of those operations. So it's a big, it's a, it's a big portfolio, but it's, we've, um, we've got great people here. So it's, it's a great team to work with. And I know that you noted that DePaul is a founding member of a mental health consortium. And talk to us about, because that, is a huge topic right now, especially in higher education with our students and talking about mental health. Talk to, talk to us about what that is and what you all are doing. Like many institutions, particularly, I think, in rural areas where we're located in rural Indiana, uh, our ability to provide mental health services to our students was really difficult. It was hard to recruit people to come here to provide mental health. And it was also hard to scale the right amount. Um, we have, we have, we're about 1,800 students. So, for example, we don't have need for a full-time psychiatrist, but we do have need for a part-time psychiatrist. Well, good luck trying to hire a part-time <laughs> psychiatrist in rural Indiana, right? right. Um, and so, uh, through the Lilly Endowment, which is just extraordinarily generous to Indiana, the state of Indiana. Um, they funded a uh, allowed us the funding to to create a consortium with two other institutions near us: Rose Holman Institute for Technology and St. Mary of the Woods College to build a mental health consortium. And the and the the premise is really twofold. One, uh, it focuses on providing personnel and sharing personnel among the three institutions so that we can get a deeper bench of people resources that we can provide that each institution wouldn't be able to do by itself. And then additionally, we've also been able to leverage shared purchasing power uh, to provide, you know, 24-7 telephone counseling, things like that, that would have been cost prohibitive for one institution to do by themselves, but together we're a, an institution of 12,000, let's say, or 10,000. And so, um, so all of the benefits to a consortium, but that's really focused on mental health. And, and it is, it's been extraordinarily successful. We're looking at how to expand, how to let other members join. Uh, and I, and, you know, I'm really passionate about consortium consortia in general, but that we've been able to attack such a an essential aspect of higher education through this has really been powerful to watch. And 
And if I can just add one other piece of it, what's Mm -hmm. also been interesting from the CFO seat is to build from the ground up, how do you make a consortium that's focused on healthcare? How do you actually make that work? What are all the legal questions? What are the HIPAA questions? What are, what, you know, so just from a, a practical standpoint, how do you actually make it go? And it took a long time, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, in, it's interesting to see how, how all that unfolds. And so I think we're building a model here that could be replicated uh, across, across the country in, in really interesting ways. Yeah, that sounds very powerful and very good for the students. The students benefit from this. Exactly. So that's really, really good. So talk, let's talk a little bit more about these consortial relationships because again, that's powerful, not obviously with the mental health, but are you doing some other things where you are, you know, working with others and talk to us a little bit about that. I believe that for at least for small private institutions, uh, we need to be engaging and building consortial relationships, particularly in areas that are not differentiators for for us. So not the first, I'm not the last to say that, but I I really, really believe it to be true. Um, One of the the organizations that we're engaged in is the HESS Collective, which is a consortia of private institutions that have come together to um, share knowledge and resources around information technology, and in particular around ERPs, Enterprise Research Planning Systems. And they have used the power of shared purchasing uh, to negotiate some contracts, uh, in particular, uh, an ERP model with Oracle. Um, but we're, we are actually piloting through that relationship. And because of DePaz standing within that group, we are piloting an implementation with Workday to be our new ERP provider um, that has is really streamlining the implementation process, adopting out-of-the-box best practice solutions for higher ed institutions uh, that allow Workday to become a product that is within the financial resources of a school like DePaul, whereas previously it would have been out of the reach of a school like ours. And so we're really, but it is because of this this vast network of HES schools that that really that Workday said, hey, this is a market that we are interested in. And we are so delighted that they that they thought DePaul was was a great school to pilot pilot this implementation model with. So we're a month and a half in and we're exhausted already, but we we just can't wait. We can't wait. Uh, it's going to change. It's really going to change the way we do business here at DePaul. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations. That's really good. That is really good. Well, also speaking of that in the future, I mean, this is really pushing you all out there with this whole, you know, technology and AI. And so that's really keeping you all right at the pulse of what's going on um, right now. And so talk to me about your future and what you're working on personally um, in the next few years. Where do you see yourself and where do you see higher ed? That's two loaded questions, but talk to us a little bit about that. You know, where, where do I see, where do I see myself? What, what am I working on? I am really working on 
helping us as an institution become what we're referring to as a flourishing university. And so thinking critically about how we use university resources, including human resources, in ways that are productive, mission-driven, and bring value to the institution. And using data, improving processes, educating people about finances as shared university resources, that's what that's what I'm doing. You know, higher ed uh, as a whole, I, I feel like I'm I'm an expert on a very narrow strip of, of higher ed, and that's small private institutions. We're we're really reckoning with the, our sticker prices and how much net tuition revenue we bring in relative to our to our sticker price. And so I think what what we're going to see is institutions like ours really needing to both demonstrate value to to incoming families and students in new and creative ways. I'm I am interested I'm interested to see how the industry responds to sticker price discount rate. I think I think that we all probably agree that that reckoning is coming coming pretty soon. But I but I and then I guess the the final thing is I think institutions like ours we we'll see more collaboration, uh more relationship building as as really a, an imperative for for our, our this sector of higher ed survival. Um because because we have to. Yeah, it's vital. So yeah, that's very important, especially with what, you know, the changes and what they're calling it the cliff and how we're getting to a certain point here with higher ed. So I think that is very, very important. Talk to us. I want to go back just a little bit before we close. Talk to us about one of the biggest challenges you would say that you've had as a CBO and how you handled that or how you overcame that challenge. I'm going to tell you a secret that the first time I read an audited financial statement was after I had already said yes to the job as CFO. Um, So, so my, I mean, so my biggest challenge uh, really was getting over that initial sense of uh, for first actually learning how to do the job and then and then uh you know getting getting past the sense of oh my gosh do i really deserve do i really deserve to be in this seat and why am i here but i will say for me covid hit about 3 months after i had been in the role and that was it leveled the playing field in so many interesting ways because cfos you know all of a sudden we're talking about perf money ppp loans what's that and are we giving discounts? Are we not? Are we reimbursing for room and board? No one knew what they were doing. And so very, so I, I was able to learn both in a crisis as well as sort of the, the regular functioning of the business and officer role and form relationships with peers in this really intense, intense time period. But I'll never forget those first few, <laughs> first few weeks. They say drinking from a fire hose and it was, it was like that and then some. Yeah, like uh, I hear of the imposter syndrome that some people face and that's in all careers, you know, at first. But I like how you said there was a level playing field when when <laughs> when COVID hit. It was like, we're all in the same boat on this one. That's so. right. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. For sure. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any final points before we close today? You know, I, I, I guess maybe my, my only final point would be that 
I think of the CFO role as uh, being an opportunity, using the CFO role as an opportunity to educate others about finances. And, and so I, I'm always interested in talking to others or thinking with others about how are we, how are we educating our communities about, about institutional finances, about, about markets, about these things. And so, um, yeah, I would welcome the opportunity to chat with anyone who hears this. That's great. All right, guys, you hear that. So yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a good conversation to have. So that's right. thank you so much, Andrea, for your time today. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Good. And thank you all for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks, brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Andrea Young from DePaul University, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. CBO Speaks is a production of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Audio engineered by Andy Nelson and True Story FM. Music by Michael Beam. Post-production support by Janelle Dempsey. And I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thank you for listening. Thank you.